Good morning. I am Josh Keller. I'm a pastor at All Saints Presbyterian Church here in town, a friend of Tim's, and friend of many of you as well that I know. Uh, Claire Finch has babysat for our kids several times. In fact, Danny Shuffield was the uh, chairman of the ordination committee when I was going through ordination, and I first came and did youth ministry at at, uh, Austin at All Saints when I first came in. I remember going through ordination looking at Danny, and then the very next week going and leading a Bible study and having Seth come in, and Danny as well. I don't know if you remember this, Danny. I remember sitting there being like, okay, the guy who just examined my theology is now listening to my Bible study that I'm giving to his kids, so I hope I do a really good job here. And I remember just feeling the anxiety of that. So it was a delight to be here. Tim asked me a while ago to come and and preach uh, for him and, and for you all, and it's really a joy to see you here in this new building, to see you all. It fills my heart with such delight seeing how God has been at work and continues to be at work in Christ the King. I'm going to read our passage this morning. It's from Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, do you ask this morning as we come to your word that the words of my mouth here this morning, the meditation of my heart, of all of our hearts together, here, hearing your word will be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. And Father, I do pray that you would take your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit implant it deep within our hearts and our lives to the very marrow of our bones, that we might be changed and be made more into the image of your Son, Jesus, who is our Savior and Lord. Amen. When I was going to seminary in Dallas, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, Aaron, my wife, and I rented a home It was over in East Dallas, kind of by White Rock Lake area, and it was sort of a really charming little neighborhood. I don't know if you've ever been in that area of Dallas before, but there were lots of cute small bungalows and Dutch colonials and cottages and huge mature giant oak trees and parks, and it was really a lovely neighborhood to be in, especially for a seminary student. But because we were a seminary student, the house that we actually lived in in this really charming neighborhood looked pretty much like a crack house. There was lead paint peeling off of the walls. There was literally no insulation in any part of the house, not the walls, not the ceiling. It got so hot in this place during the summer 
that even when you were in the room that had the air unit air conditioner, you were still sweating. That's how bad it was. The shingles were falling off. It was actually also being bored away by carpenter bees. So the beams of the structure of the house was falling down. But you really couldn't tell from the street. If you were on the street in this neighborhood and you looked to our house, you couldn't see how bad the house was because there was this beautiful, giant oak tree that just sat right in the front of the house. Huge foliage, unbelievably strong and beautiful. You couldn't see what was really behind it. And one day, on a windless Saturday, Aaron and I were sitting inside our house. I don't remember what we were doing, but suddenly our whole house started shaking. The ground was vibrating. We heard a noise like a plane that was landing on top of us. And after a few minutes, it was gone. And Aaron, I'd never been in an earthquake before, and I was like, is this an earthquake? Aaron and I were looking at each other, terrified. We ran outside the house, and that giant oak tree had split like this and come down. It had just missed our house by the corners. It had just taken some corners off of the house, and it had actually fallen into our neighbor's house, straight through his roof, into his bathroom, while he was in there taking a shower at the time. He was terrified. And we were all terrified. It was a huge shaking event that also revealed to everyone how broken and how ugly, how mismanaged, and how much the house that we were living in needed to change. And I thought about that story this morning because if you heard in Hebrews chapter 12 here, this passage, there was a word repeated five times, again and again and again, shaken, shook, shaken. It reminded me in that experience that we live, even as Tim prayed about in his prayer of adoration, that we live in a very shakable world in which things are unclear and frightening and dangerous. I know it's not a stretch for me to say here this morning, even though I don't know all of you and haven't been involved in your life, that I, I suspect that over the past several years you have had profound shakings in your own life. Shaking so much that your life will never be the same. Last month for our family was the one-year anniversary of my mother-in-law's death from ovarian cancer. That's a shaking that changes your whole world. As many of you who have experienced the death of a parent knows, it's that umbrella of protection of your parents' love and protection is suddenly gone and you are alone in the world in a way that you have never really been before. And you must become now a new person. You've been shaken apart and have to become something new. Same as a loss of a job, a failing body, betrayal by a friend or betrayal by a spouse, anxiety, depression, or over the last several years, what feels to be the general shaking of our society. Our economy, our public life and public discourse seem to be falling apart and shaking around us. And I know that many of you are feeling that. I'm feeling that. A sense of shaking. In the light of that shakableness this morning, I want to look at three things from this passage. A shakable world, unshakable kingdom, and living in a shakable world. A shakable world, unshakable kingdom, and living in a shakable world. Let's first look at the first of those, a shakable world. This passage here in Hebrews chapter 12, it's sort of the culmination and end of everything that the writer to Hebrews has been saying to the people in the letter of Hebrews from the very beginning. And I didn't want to include the whole section here uh, from verses 18 and on, but Tim, uh, the allusion there is to Exodus chapter 19 and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. That's what's going on in the previous section here in 18 through 25. 
And Tim had that for our Old Testament reading, helpfully. But the context is, in chapter 12, the writer is saying, I want to give you this encouragement. Go on. Run the race of the Christian faith and the Christian journey with endurance. Endure the suffering and discipline that you are experiencing. Receive the discipline of your Father in heaven. Receive it joyfully. Lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your knees. Why? Well, because God has done something unique in Jesus in the space of time and history. He has made Jesus to be the one to fulfill and supersede all the promises of the Old Testament. All of the Mosaic Law. Everything the book of Hebrews has been talking about. Jesus has come. He's fulfilled those promises. He has shaken down the Old Testament and the Old Mosaic Covenant and the way that it was going to the thing that was essential about the Mosaic Covenant that could not be shaken would last. And that thing was Jesus and Jesus' kingdom. That's everything that he's talking about in Hebrews and of course summarizing here at the end of Hebrews here, chapter 12 and verses 18. You have not come, he's saying to them, to what may be touched, like Mount Sinai, that we heard about in Exodus 19, that, was a, that the people were trembling and the mountain was shaking. It was an earth-shaking moment. Because God at that moment was reconfiguring the nation of Israel and His relationship with them. He was giving them the law. He was shaking down the way that they used to relate to them. And He was giving them something new and more substantial. And He was doing the same in Jesus Christ as well. Shaking down the unsubstantial, the temporary things that they might be fulfilled and reordered and transfigured in Jesus. That we might be connected to the heavenly realities that are all pointing to Jesus and fulfilled in Him. That's what he's talking about here, this warning in verse 25 in the beginning of our Hebrews 12 passage. He's talking about how the nation of Israel, when they were there at Mount Sinai, they heard the word of God. They heard the law of God given to them. They felt the shaking around them. They felt the consuming fire and the presence of a holy God. And they were shaken. The world was shaking around them. They knew that something was changing. And what did they do? They refused what they heard. Do you remember? While Moses was receiving all of the instructions on the tabernacle and everything else, after the Ten Commandments had been given to them, fast forward just a little bit to Exodus 32, and what does the nation of Israel do? They make the golden calf. They receive the Ten Commandments, but they didn't want the transformation and change that God was bringing into them. They liked the old way. They liked the calf, which was a symbol of a deity from Egypt. They liked the idea of where they were in Egypt. They wanted, it says, to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt where food was abundant, where they're around the river Nile, where they didn't have to depend upon God. But God shook all of that down from them so that they had to depend upon Him. But the nation of Israel, they were gripping hard to the kingdoms that they wanted to hold on to the ones that they didn't want to let go, but the things that were ultimately shakable, that God was going to shake out for a deeper reality and a deeper truth and ultimately a deeper relationship with Him. I thought about this when we in our life experience similar kinds of shaking. Because of the shaking that happened at Mount Sinai and the transformation for the nation of Israel that was culminated in Jesus is a shaking that now Jesus does all throughout the world. When it says here in verse... We'll have to look because I don't quite remember. When it says here in verse 27, not only... Sorry, verse 26, not only the things on earth that are going to be shaken, like at Mount Sinai, 
But Jesus has now shaken heaven itself in the spiritual reality, in the spiritual realms, in the spiritual forces, in the principalities of the air, and the demonic forces. He has shaken them out as well in His death and in His resurrection. And He's reordering all of the world and indeed each and every one of our individual hearts and lives as we hold on to Jesus and follow Him. But when we're getting shaken, I think we tend to do what Israel did. We tend to want to grab on to things. The old things. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to let go of the things that God is shaking out of us. We grab at the, th- at the shaking. We refuse the transformation. And we refuse the change that God's shaking produces in our life. We want to hold on to how it used to be. Like the nation of Israel, building a calf. To hold on to the way that it used to be back in Egypt. That was what they knew. They didn't want to go out in the desert, dependent ultimately upon God. That's why they grumbled the entire way. That's why God judged them even for that. So we tend to grab at the things that are shaking, because we don't want to let go of them. We also do this. We often blame other people or other things. Why am I experiencing this shaking in my life? Well, really, it must be the person I'm married to. It's this job that I am. It's just not satisfying and fulfilling enough. I need to get a new one. It isn't that God might be highlighting to me a broken pattern and sinful pattern in my life that He wants to shake out of me and transform and change in me. No, it's got to be this external thing. And if I can just ignore the one who's shaking me and change the thing that's getting shaken, then I'll feel secure and safe. Get a new job. Get a new spouse. Get a new career, get a new home, get a new situation, get a new possession. Until that begins to shake. And then we move on to the next one and the next one. Or perhaps this, we begin to blame ourselves. I'm the one. That's the cause of the shaking. I'm the problem, so I'm going to begin to loathe myself and hate myself. And then because that is unsustainable, I'm going to numb myself from dealing with myself, with drink or TV, or food, or pleasure, rather than abandon myself to God and rely upon Him. Or, increasingly, in our world, we just blame reality. There's no real good thing in this world. It's all transitory. None of it matters. It's all an illusion. We become joyless, cynical, hard, and jaded. Ultimately, ungrateful. In my pastoral ministry, that's what I have seen. When people's lives get shaken, they go in those directions. Those four directions, or they go to Jesus and find Him the center that cannot be shaken to which they will hold. Like the tree in the front of our house, once the tree started shaking and it fell down, suddenly we could see everything that was wrong with the house. And what God does when He shakes our lives up like this, and He shakes the world around us, when He shakes even this country around us down upon to its foundations, the tree falls and we begin to see the things that are ultimately not things that participate in the life of Jesus, in the resurrected order of Jesus, but things that belong to the old patterns of the world, to the old man, to the sinful broken patterns that are dying and being put away with and are going away. God is revealing those things that do not work anymore because they are ultimately patterns of sin, and patterns of rebellion against Him. And so the nation of Israel refused to turn to God. And the question 
that the writer to Hebrews is telling the writers to Hebrews and there to us and to churches throughout the generations is do not refuse the one who is not only shaking the earth but is now able to shake heaven itself because he has taken his sacrifice himself in his resurrection and ascension into the very spiritual realm, into the very throne room of God and has shaken the spiritual realm as well. Do not refuse him who is now asking you to receive his transforming work in your life and allow him to change and transform you. So is that you? Are you wanting to refuse the transformation and shaking that Jesus is bringing into your life? Are you holding hard to a shakable kingdom and a shakable world and shakable things? So the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that there is an unshakable kingdom in the midst of this shakable world. That's what he says at the very end of chapter 12 here in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he shook the world and history and future, the present and the past and the spiritual realm. And it reordered not just how Israel would relate to God, it reordered the world itself. Not just how the church would relate to God, but how the world itself would relate to God. And God continues through Jesus and through his church to continue to bring this shaking into the world everywhere it goes. That's what the church does as an outpost of the Spirit of God in individual lives, in communities, in nations, burning away the old, crumbling patterns of this world that are animated by sin and by violence and selfishness and pride. He shakes them so that in verse 27, the only things in the end that remain are the unshakable things of this world. The things that cannot be shaken are the things that are animated and belonging to the life of the resurrected Jesus. Because he had everything shaken off on the cross. Everything that belonged to him died on the cross. And yet God the Father raised him from the dead. And he returned, resurrected and alive once again in a physical body that had been made glorified by the Holy Spirit. So that the things that belong to this eternal kingdom of life and love, these will not be shaken. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, these things remain, faith, hope, and love. And Jesus, the King over all. So all that this writer is saying here, we should be grateful for in verse 28, that this kingdom that cannot be shaken, that's animated by the life of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit itself, this kingdom cannot be shaken, but notice this very important word in verse 28 here. Received. This kingdom is received. This unshakable kingdom is established by Christ. It belongs to Him. And if you are in Christ, you have received this reality by faith through Him. You belong to this unshakable kingdom. You've been put into it, adopted into it, by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and by faith that the Holy Spirit has worked in your life. When everything else in your life is shaking, there is one thing which does not shake. And it's not something that you have earned or attained or held on to. It is the kingdom of God of the resurrected Jesus that has been given to you. It does not shake, and you have received it. One kingdom which is eternally secure with a future that isn't possible, but certain. You understand what I mean when I say that? Of course it's possible in that sense, but not, well, hopefully it's possible. That would be great. It is certain. This is the future to which we are headed, indeed the future of the entire world. Because only Jesus Christ's kingdom can never be shaken. 
And if you are in Christ then, the writer of Hebrews says, be grateful. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. Be thankful. And then reorder your desires. Reorder all the other shakable things that you were holding on to underneath your worship of Jesus Christ. That's what he says here. Receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken and then let us offer to God acceptable worship. As we offer to God acceptable worship, all of our order, disordered desires get reordered correctly underneath Him and with Him. Be in awe of God's power and love for you in reverence because God is something to behold. He is a consuming fire. As Tim said in, from Exodus in his prayer from Exodus 19, the same God who showed up on Mount Sinai in a bright, consuming fire. You, um, Tim, you're from California. I've never experienced this here, but I wasn't here. I was came after the wildfires went through Bastrop. But in California, I've seen videos driving down the highway and just consuming fires burning down the mountainside, burning everything in its path. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, that same God who showed up on Mount Sinai was like that and is like that still today. And He will burn away every unholy thing in this world and in your life. You will shake them all down because what He wants to remain is the things that will always eternally remain. The things that are animated by Jesus Christ Himself and the Holy Spirit at work in your life. The things that are ultimately unshakable. But of course, we do live in a now and a not yet, right? We live in a very shakable world, even as we mentioned, even though we are looking forward to the kingdom that will never be shaken. So how do we, living in a shakable world, how do we live through it in a shakable world until Christ returns? That's what Hebrews 13, I think, is all about. The concluding statement, the concluding chapter of Hebrews here is giving them, this is what the nature of those who belong to an unshakable kingdom, this is what it looks like. This is the character of the people who belong to this kingdom look like. This is what the church looks like. This is how it is meant to behave and how it is meant. This is the character it is supposed to have. The people in the letter to Hebrews were going through all of their own shake. These people were being put in prison. They were having their goods and homes taken away. Some of them were being killed. And so the encouragement of the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, in a very shakable world in which they were experiencing severe shaking, he's saying to us as well, Verse 14 of chapter 13, I know I didn't read it for you, but this is what the writer of Hebrews says very elegantly. For here we have no lasting city. That is, we have no city in the shakable kingdom. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, the heavenly Jerusalem, which will never shake. And that is what it means to be a Christian. Living in a shakable world, it means to seek the city that is to come, to seek the kingdom that is unshakable. Or you could say it this way, or is how I'm going to say it, rather. <laughs> Live into that coming city. Live into that coming city. Several years ago, I married a couple who, right after they got engaged, the groom received an unbelievable job offer in Chicago. And so he took it. And so he moved to Chicago. Well, his wife, or his bride-to-be at that point in their engagement, stayed in Dallas where they were from. So she was in Dallas. Her husband was in Chicago. Now, was the bride living in Dallas at the time, was her home Chicago or Dallas? Yes, <laughs> it was both. She was in Dallas, but there was a home for her that was her true home in the future, and that was Chicago. In a very real sense, she belonged to Chicago, 
even though she hadn't got there yet. And so I remember in doing our premarital counseling, she kept talking about, well, I'm going to have to buy a winter coat. I'm going to have to get galoshes. I'm going to have to get ready to like deep dish pizza. You know, she was living into, in other words, that coming city where she was going. So too with Christ. He has moved us, those who are in Christ by faith and through baptism, He has moved us into a new state, a new city, a new kingdom. So are you preparing for that kingdom which is to come? Chapter 13 here gives a quick list of the character of these people. We've got several things here, and we're just going to look at the first five here. Verses 1 through 6. Brotherly love, hospitality to strangers, remembering the imprisoned, honoring marriage, and freedom from money. The first two here, brotherly love, hospitality to strangers, that have to do with our relationships within and without. Brotherly love. Are the other people in this church, the churches across this city, even the world, do you understand them as your brothers and sisters in Jesus? And do you love them for that? Do you will their good, in other words? That's what it means to love, to will the good of the other. Do you will the good of the other men and women and children in this church? Are you envious instead, though, or disdainful, or forgetful of their needs, or angry about them? That's not brotherly and sisterly love. This is a characteristic of God's unshakable kingdom, that those in it treat each other with faithful, familial love. That's inside. On the outside, hospitality and kindness. The word here in Greek is xenophilia which you've maybe heard before. Love of the stranger, the opposite of is uh, the word xenophobia, which you've maybe heard before. Fear of the stranger. It's amazing being in here in this new building for your church. It is so encouraging and delightful to me. I know that God has made a home for you here. I hope you feel that as well and are encouraged by that. But He hasn't placed you in this particular place on accident. The people in this community around your church. At the moment, they might be strangers to you. My hope, my prayer, my encouragement to you is that this new church building would be a place of true gospel hospitality to this community, to this part of Austin. A real picture of love of the stranger, of xenophilia. Because you don't know what your hospitality and love of the stranger is going to do. The writer of Hebrews here mentions that we might have entertained angels unawares. He's reminding them of what happens in Genesis when God comes to Abraham unawares and God entertains, Abraham rather, entertains God and surprises to find him. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, whatsoever you do to the least of these, you have done it unto me. Then after that he talks about remembering those in prison. Those suffering or being mistreated for their faith. Their sufferings are part of of the witness of the unshakable kingdom, standing regardless of whatever assaults are thrown at them because they hold to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do we regard those, do you all regard those who are suffering as family members in need? Are you encouraging those who are assaulted for speaking of Jesus Christ as Lord? Or do we avoid them so we might avoid pain that might fall onto us? Or is their pain like pain in our own body? as the writer of Hebrews says, since you are also of the same body. You are united in Jesus. What the church feels and suffers is what we all feel and suffer. Do you pray for those who are persecuted, your brothers and sisters throughout the world? Finally, the last two. You notice that the command is to honor marriage 
is not just given to married people. It's to everyone in the church. You know, we live in a time of inordinate sexual confusion in our culture at large. I think this means quite simply that this is an area of unique witness that the church has for our world in this day and age. To give sexual sanity. To be places of sexual sanity for our world. If that's the case, then sexual sanity cannot just be the business of people who are married, but of the entire church. That protecting marriages and keeping them healthy is not just the work of the husband and the wife, but the work of the friends and the work of single people and the work of even children and brothers and sisters in the church. Keeping the commitments that our marriage entails, of course, is binding all sexual relations to the marriage covenant. But it also means looking at the brothers and sisters in the church as brothers and sisters first and not as potential sexual partners. Protecting the marriage bed before you are tempted to defile the marriage bed. Why? Because the eternal city is one where vows and promises are kept and commitments fulfilled because that is the nature of the God of the kingdom of that city. He does not lie and He does what He says. And so we need to aid each other to do the same thing. To keep our commitments and encourage each other to be faithful to our vows. It's also why God will judge those who break their covenant vows. Because it goes directly against the very nature of who God is. And it says to the world around him that God does not keep his promises. Finally, keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It's not an easy task, especially as everything in the world around us screams to be discontent and to satisfy your discontentment by buying something or to panic as the economy goes up or goes down. But the enjoinder to this command is that Christ will never, what? Forsake you. That he is your help. You do not need to fear. Which puts in context this section. As I stated, money often, money is not evil, but rather the love of money is what is evil and is called out here. And contentment doesn't mean you don't work or you don't strive, but rather that you do not set your hope and joy on the things and possessions of this world. That you're grateful what you have. And if you are grateful, then you are generous with it. Because you find your real security not in the things of this world, but in God. In fact, of course, all we have is from God. And money itself, as we've been talking in this context of the sermon, is a shakable thing. It comes and it goes. As the psalmist says, if riches increase, set not your heart on it. And when you die, your wealth goes where you cannot control it anyway. As Ecclesiastes reminds us, as Jesus says, be rich rather towards God. Invest in His unshakable kingdom. Because Christ has secured for you an inheritance worthy of a son of the eternal, unchanging, powerful God. To whom honor and glory and praise will be rendered for all time. He's secured for you an unshakable kingdom. And so while you are shaken in this world, put your trust in Him. Let Him transform you. Let Him sanctify you. Let Him shake off all the dead and sinful things in your life. Hold to Him even while He shakes down this world that only the true and good things remain and live into his unshakable kingdom. W.H. Auden's wrote a poem called For the Time Being, which I love. And he ends this poem in a very beautiful way. He summarizes what following Christ in our world often looks like, calling Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. There's a middle stanza, which is my favorite, and he says this. Jesus is the truth. Seek him in the kingdom of anxiety. You will come to a great city 
that has expected your return for years. We seek the city that is to come, but it's already expecting our return. So trust in Him. In the midst of a shakable, anxious world, you will come to a city that has expected your return for years, where the King is waiting to welcome you. Amen. Father, we do pray that our lives would be characterized by confidence in you and in your unshakable kingdom. You are the resurrected Jesus, and we ask that we might share in your resurrected life by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you might transform us and change us, and that we might participate with you in that process. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.